Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. Fire is a, is a dreadful thing, and you know it can be used to our benefit, certainly, but when a fire gets out of control, it's an incredibly dangerous thing. We've had people adjacent to our church family who have been injured in fires, and it's a, it's a horrible thing. I remember when I was a, a younger man, my brother went to Baylor University, and we went down there for, a, I guess it was homecoming or something like that. And they, on the campus there at Baylor, they built this enormous bonfire, and it was like made of telephone poles. It was huge. The thing must have been 60 feet high, and they were just stacked up in bundles all the way around this thing. And they set it on fire, and. I can remember the heat coming off that thing was so intense that you couldn't get within 60 yards of it without it just making you feel like you're literally being cooked. It was the hottest fire I've ever personally experienced in my life. In fact, I think some colleges had some issues with building big bonfires like that and having them fall around, people getting injured and stuff. It's kind of a dangerous thing, but it made an impression on me about the intense heat that comes from a big fire. And if you think about that in light of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the example that was put before you, that's the threat those men were facing. We're going to throw you into a furnace. That is no joking matter. And the testimony of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is remarkable because of just how strong their answer is. Jesus Christ taught in the New Testament that we are to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. And you see that modeled in the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They say, look, if it's God's will, He can deliver us. We're not saying He will, by the way. You see that? He's saying that's, if it's God's will, He can deliver us, and our confidence is that He can. I think they fully understood He may not. But if it's His will, He can. And ultimately, they were delivered in the face of that incredibly hostile threat. This convicts me because I wonder to what degree we're willing to shy away from our testimony in the face of a much lesser threat. You know, are we willing to not testify about what the Lord can do and has done for us because we feel like, well, it might be socially awkward. It might make this conversation a little bit more uncomfortable than it would otherwise be. Maybe the threat's a little bigger than that. Maybe it's, well, I might could lose my job over this. Or any number of other lesser threats. Just don't want to be thought poorly of. I'm going to go along to get along. It always convicts me in that way. And I suspect that in the days and weeks to come, we're going to get opportunities to represent what we believe before people. And I would ask you to draw courage from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You should recognize the Lord may not deliver you from the uncomfortable situation you find yourself in. Fortunately, we're not facing the flames at this point, but that's happened in the past to your brothers and sisters in Christ. It could happen again. So we should be better about testifying. We should draw encouragement and courage from those men, knowing that God can deliver us. And you know, even if He doesn't deliver us in temporal circumstances, He's going to deliver us eternally. And we should have confidence in that. The thoughts I had on my mind today are really around two ideas. Never man spake and never man sat.
These are two things that are taught in the Bible of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to look at them today, but I want to start by grounding us in something that the Lord said in his answer to Job. So I'm in Job chapter 38. And I just want to remind us here with this initial text of who we're talking about here. We're talking about God, right? God is greater than we ever make him out to be. And we need to be constantly reminded of this. He's the God who can deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from a seemingly impossible situation. I mean, I suspect if any of us thought, well, God's going to deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so that means He's not going to let them be thrown into the furnace. Right? That's the way we do it. Well, if you get thrown in there, you're toast. Right? No, not with God. God let them be thrown in there and saved them in the midst of that in an even more miraculous deliverance because that's who God is. That's a testimony of His greatness. By the way, it's a clear proof. I made mention a couple of weeks ago of this idea of science falsely so-called. Science falsely so-called would say if you're thrown into a burning, fiery furnace, you will not come out of it alive or you will be severely burned and unrecognizable. That's science falsely so-called if it opposes the idea that God could not deliver someone from that. Because God has dominion over the things of nature, and He proved that with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Chapter 38 says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Who are we to draw into question what God has done? It's ridiculous. It's like an ant saying something about, well, why did you build this house here? I wanted to build an ant mound here, and you built this house. I can't believe this. And yet it's vastly more than the comparison between ant and man, because we're both creatures. Gird up now thy loins like a man. For I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. That's precisely where science falsely so-called goes. They weren't there. When the universe was created, nobody was there. But they're willing to walk right into that issue and say, based on what I've seen, I know exactly how this came to pass. And I guarantee you it didn't come from a God. It came from a bunch of processes and complex things that you plebs out there can't possibly understand. But the wise and prudent of the universities of greater society, we understand it. And pity be it on you if you don't really understand it. We we wouldn't expect anything more than that. But God looks at this and says, were you there? (laughs) See, the testimony we have from the Bible is an eyewitness testimony from the one who actually created this world puts man in his place. Declare if thou hast understanding. Well, the proper answer to that is to say, well, you know what, you're right. I didn't see it. I don't really know. I might have some theories, but they're just that. The point that should be made here to anyone, to a spiritual person like Joe, who might have entertained some silly thoughts from time to time, like all foolish men do, but a spiritual man should look at this and say, you know what, you're right, Lord. I really don't have any basis for making any declarations about how this world was created. And you were there. And you did the work. And so we're going to trust your word in these matters. Who hath laid the measure thereof, if thou knowest? 
or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened, and who laid the cornerstone thereof? This text goes on and on, and I won't read the entire chapter to you. I will leave that as a homework assignment for you this week. Read through Job 38, and look at what God says about Himself. Then go out into the world and see what science falsely so-called is saying about the origin of the world. The bottom line of this is, were you there? You weren't there. God was there and He's told us that He created this world. That's who God is. He's greater than we make Him out to be and we need to be regularly reminded of His greatness and His power. He speaks about these things firsthand. And I think Job's reaction to this is to say, you know what, I've never heard anyone speak to me like this. This is how God speaks. Never man spake as God speaks to me in this moment here. I think that's what Job ultimately concludes in this. And that's certainly true. Now let's turn over to John chapter 7. We see the Lord Jesus Christ in a conversation here. I'll do a fair amount of reading here because I want you to see the context. But here's where we're headed. I'll give you a, a preview of this. Verse 46, the officers answered, never man spake like this man. That's an intriguing statement. We've never heard anybody say anything like this before. And I think what these men experienced is very similar to what Job experienced, which is, I have heard God say something today. This man is speaking in this way because he is God. He's not speaking as a mere man. He's speaking as God manifest in the flesh. But let's look at the context leading up to that because that intriguing statement implies a whole bunch, or it's in reference to a whole bunch of things that came before it. And I think there's some important lessons lurking in what this man said, the man Jesus Christ, that would cause them to say, never man spake like this man. After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for He would not walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill Him. By the way, if you speak as Jesus speaks, you're going to encounter hostility in this world. I don't see any old Baptists out there wouldn't raise their hand and say, yes, we live in a rampantly wicked world. Brother Randy made mention of evil men and seducers going to wax worse and worse. We are in, you know, the end times and there's all these horrible things going on. If you were in a violent flood... It would be crazy to say you're not going to get wet. So who are we to, to say we're in a flood of wickedness all around and we're not going to be wet from it. We're not going to suffer some of the results of it. It's going to happen. And to the extent that you testify of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to draw some of that to him. So you need to know that they wanted to kill him. Now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence, and go into Judea, that thy disciples may also see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. They're encouraging him to continue his public ministry. I think there's an element here of, if you'll just do some more miracles, maybe some more people will actually get it. But the truth of the matter is this, no man is saved by witnessing a miracle. A man is eternally saved because he is the object of a miracle. You can have the hardness of heart that attends an unregenerate man and you can see a withered hand restored right in front of you and the hardness of your heart will not allow you to accept that this is God manifest in the flesh 
this is someone I should serve and worship. You have to be the object of a miracle, a resurrection miracle of regeneration, in order for you to see that and say, truly, this is God. For neither did his brethren believe him. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. You think there's some things going on in this world today where you're going to have opportunities in your community, in your family, among your friends to say, that thing right there is evil. Jesus Christ did that, and they hated him for it. You're going to be hated for it too. You'll be hated by members of your own household. You may be hated by people that you regard as your closest friends. But if you step into the matter of good and evil and you start saying, this is evil, don't be surprised if you're hated for it. It will bring hatred your way. By the way, that doesn't mean that you should shy away from it. Neither should you be hostile and trying to make them hate you over it. Right? You can wield the truth in a way that is hostile. But you can stand for the truth in a way that is sincere and earnestly contends for the faith, and yet they hate you for it anyway. So we need to stand. Verse 8, he says, Go ye up unto this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. And when he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. So they want him to be there, but he's lingering. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. For some said, He is a good man, and others say, Nay, but he deceiveth the people. Jesus Christ, in his representation of truth, made him a, a figure of public controversy, right? He's a controversial figure that people are not in full agreement about. Some people are seeing something about his ministry and saying, yeah, there's something to this. And others are saying, no, he's a, he's a false prophet. By the way, being accused of being a false prophet is not strictly the domain of false prophets. God's people are regularly accused of being false prophets and dealing in untruths. They called Paul a heretic. Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament. They called him a heretic. He said, you know, I'll just tell you the truth. The way that you call heresy, that's how I worship God, just as the fathers did before. So he was willing to accept their reproach and say, you want to call me a heretic? That's fine. I'm just telling you I worship God the way the people in the Bible worship God. And I'm willing to own that. Yeah, I think he models a great response, by the way, if you're ever accused of heresy. And it will happen. Many of God's people are so confused about doctrine that they think the truth is a heresy. That's a fact. So if you're representing the truth before God's people in this world, particularly those who are fairly zealous about their religious affiliations and maybe what their church in particular believes, you will eventually run into someone who says, you're a heretic. Say what Paul said would be my recommendation. I can just tell you that what you're calling a heresy, that's how I worship God. That's how the prophets and apostles worship God. Verse 13, Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now here's another thing that happens. People are pretty 
scared sometimes about sharing what they really think about things, particularly in religious matters. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. I think at the moment he came to Nicodemus, he saw there's something very special about this person that draws me to him. However, I'm going to go to him by night because I want to kind of keep this on the down low. I don't want this to get out because it could be very bad for him socially if people knew that he was a respecter of the ministry of Jesus Christ. You see that? You see that come up in the New Testament quite a bit. So no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. I'm sure that they checked his credentials at the front gate. May we see your degree? Do you have your membership card? Can you prove on your resume that you have been officially instructing in this capacity for some time because you're going to come to the temple and teach? You think? And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? No, that's not the case. They knew Jesus Christ was an uneducated person from a classical perspective. He did not go to receive the religious instruction that all of their religious officiators had, which were required to be a certified and official approved religious officiator in their society. He didn't receive any of it. So he's walking up with none of that, and he's starting to teach. Now let me tell you something. Organized religion of the form that much of Christianity takes is horribly offended by that notion. The one thing they don't want is a bunch of Galilean fishermen coming up and trying to teach something out of the Bible. They want to make very sure that you have gone to their institutions and they have proselytized you in their doctrine and in their practice such that you're not going to stray off the path and create a problem. You're going to preach what we preach and not preach what the Bible actually teaches. This is still in effect today. The Jews marvel, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? I've heard this said of elders in our church. Well, how's that guy preaching? Did he go to seminary? Where's his degree from? Is he doctor so-and-so? Where was his Ph.D. or his Th.D.? Why is he presuming to preach? I mean, the majority of the people that Jesus handpicked <laughs> to be his ministers were uneducated Galilean fishermen. It's not that they're uneducated. A God-called minister who has been ordained, if it's been done properly, is an educated person. He's just not educated through the mechanism of religion. He's taught of God, he's taught within the context of the New Testament church, and he doesn't take out a Pell Grant to pay for it. Jesus answered and said them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whither I speak of myself. One of the biggest defenses of seminary education is that this gives you the tools to be able to know the truth. We're going to help you to see the truth and understand the truth, and we'll give you the tools to be able to assess this. Now, Jesus Christ makes no mention of seminary in any of this. He's not talking about that. He did not attend a seminary. He's saying the doctrine is God's. Those who are doing God's will, they will know the doctrine, and they'll know whether it be of God 
or whether I speak of myself. But look at this. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. This is completely dismantling the traditional view among them of what a religious person or a religious officiator is supposed to be. He's coming out of nowhere with this without any of the credentialing and all that. This is a dangerous notion, by the way. If you look at the religious institutions that are built and the seminary institutions that are built all over the country, you're talking about multi-multi-million dollar institutions that employ thousands upon thousands of people. There's untold scads of people who are enfranchised in this system. If you start launching out against it, if you make the case that perhaps this is unnecessary, you've got all these people who are in the warp and woof of the system now who are all going to lose their jobs if we determine this thing is totally unnecessary. So it creates a lot of friction among people who are in franchise. I'll give you an example. I have often thought that a flat tax would be a good idea. I lost my job several years ago. I got in a situation with the IRS, got behind on taxes and things like that. Praise the Lord, I've been delivered out of all that. All that's been taken care of now. And I'm thankful for that. But it made me think a lot about the tax code and the complexity of it and all of the work that goes into filing taxes and all the things that must be done, all the laws and the loopholes and all these various things. Why wouldn't we just say, okay, let's just do a 15% tax on everything you buy and send that straight to the government. No loopholes, no exceptions, period. And eliminate the IRS. And we're not going to do any withholding or any of that. Let's just do that. Now, you could haggle, well, it might need to be 18%. Or it might need to be, that's too much, might need to be 12%. You can haggle about the amount and all that sort of stuff. I'm not trying to make that case. What I'm trying to say is that one of the biggest oppositions you would have to that idea is that you have millions of people in the United States of America who are totally enfranchised in the tax system. What if you're the guy in Malvern that's running a business where you're filing people's taxes? That job is completely eliminated under a system like that. What if you're a high-paid tax attorney working for some corporation? You're making millions of dollars a year because it's all complicated, and I'm the only one who understands all this complex stuff. And I came up with this way over here that if we did it this way, and if we put this shell company over here in the Cayman Islands, then we would save this amount of money. And those guys making millions of dollars because the system is so complex, he's the only one who understands it. And you say, not nah, we'll just do 15%. His job is gone. It's over. All those offices, all those government jobs that are taking care of this, gone. There's none of it anymore. It reduces way back to a mere fraction of what it was before. I'm not trying to convince all of you that we need to push for a flat tax system, but what I am trying to do is help you enter into the reality that people get enfranchised in a system, and they end up with a lot of skin in the game of that system, right? And that happens not only in the tax code, it happens in religion. People get a lot of skin in the game of religion, and they're supporting certain things. And if you make it out now that all of a sudden, well, maybe all this seminary education and all these things we're doing, they're not necessary. 
What if we just went back and did what the Lord taught, what the apostles taught, which is that the church of God is an institution of instruction. That's where elders are raised up and taught, and they're taught by other God-called elders, and they raise them up to preach the truth. That's what the Bible teaches, and it has contempt poured on it by organized religion. (laughs) See why never a man spake is this man? These ideas are not going to be popular in establishment religion. They wanted to kill him for it. Verse 19, Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? Why go you about to kill me? Their entire religion was based on Moses, the the writing of the law, and they had morphed and, and warped this thing into a situation where it's like, well, now it's really just, you know, God gave us the laws. If we'll just keep the laws then we'll be good. We'll be righteous because we kept the law. But the law was never intended to give that lesson. The law is intended to be the schoolmaster that leads you to Christ. It's supposed to show you I have need of a Savior. And therefore, this idea of a Savior who died for my sins is tremendously appealing to me. But they had warped the law, and that's what much of establishment religion today does. They take people with a sensitivity who want to be pleasing to God. They give them things to do to be pleasing to God and tell them you'll be okay if you just do these things. And many people are deceived by it. Verse 20, The people answered and said, Thou hast a devil. Who goeth about to kill thee? You're crazy. Why do you think that about us? Jesus answered and said unto them, I have done one work, and Ye all marvel. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, but not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers. And ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, are ye angry at me, because I have made man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? They're trying to call him into question. They don't even realize he's the author of the Ten Commandments. If anyone knows how to properly handle them, It's this person, because never man spake is this man. They have an understanding of it in terms of the letter and how they've applied it and how they've warped it so that they can kind of say, well, I'm kind of keeping it because I'm not really considering all of it. I'm just considering the parts that I think are really important. He understands the spirit of it and the intent of it because never man spake is this man. And he says this, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. I've heard so many people say, Jesus Christ said, judge not that you be not judged. You're not supposed to judge people. Well, right here he says, (laughs) judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. There's judgment that needs to take place in the minds of God's people. They need to judge rightly about things, though. They need to have spiritual discernment in order to do that. Then said some of them of Jerusalem, is not this he whom they seek to kill? But lo, he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Howbeit we know this man whence he is, but when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. This can't be him. We're not, su- we, we're not sure about this situation. Surely this Messiah is going to be different than this Jesus Christ that's standing before us here today. They had a lot of bad ideas about the Messiah. Most of them, it seems, thought that the Messiah was going to come back and establish an earthly kingdom like David. And he was going to rule Israel in the same way that David did. And they didn't recognize that there's a spiritual interpretation to those 
prophecies in the Old Testament, that the kingdom is the Lord's New Testament church, and that the spiritual Israel is God's chosen people, not some physical nation here on the earth. And they interpreted all that from things that they saw in books like Malachi and stuff like that. They thought this was how it's going to be. By the way, I just point out, this is very much how many people today interpret the book of Revelation. They say Jesus is coming back. He's going to establish an earthly kingdom here. He's going to set up rule on the earth. I suspect the same error is in play. A failure to recognize the spiritual realities that are talked about in that book, but I won't belabor that point. Verse 28, Then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, Ye both know me, and you know whence I am, and I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom ye know not. But I know him, for I am from him, and he hath sent me. He, he's not saying, look, you're right, I should have shown you my seminary credentials before I showed up here. I should have proven to you that I was a certified member of the Sanhedrin who is authorized to speak in this capacity in God's house. He's talking about authorization from God. Now, when you talk about that among people in our day, people kind of, yeah, right, okay, whatever, you, you've been called of God. Sure. They'd much rather see the official credentialing because it makes them feel a lot more comfortable, but Jesus didn't show it to them. Neither is He leaning upon it. He's leaning upon God Himself. Then they sought to take Him, but no man laid hands on Him because His hour was not yet come. There are people, I suspect, in your life who have been hostile towards you and would have done ill will to you, and you don't even know about it, because God restrained them from doing it, kept them from doing evil to you that they would have otherwise done. I believe that is true. It was certainly true of Jesus here. And many of the people believed on Him and said, When Christ cometh, will He do more miracles than these which this man hath done? I think that's a good question. Jesus Christ did miracle after miracle after miracle in full view of everybody, And there's some people there that go, really? I mean, how many more miracles do you want to see? He's done miracle after miracle. This is the point I made earlier. If someone's got the hardness of heart that attends being unregenerate, you can show millions of miracles to them and they're never going to believe it. They don't have the faith to receive that testimony. They regard it as foolishness. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Well, there's nothing more that organized religion wants to do than shut down the truth. Then said Jesus unto them, Yet a little while am I with you, and then I go unto him that sent me. Ye shall seek me, and shall not find me, and where I am, thither ye cannot come. Then said the Jews among themselves, Whither will he go? that we shall not find him. Will he go unto the dispersed among the Gentiles and teach the Gentiles? That almost sounds prophetic, doesn't it? If you think about where this is headed later on in the New Testament. By the way, what they're saying there in that context is, well, the Jews are God's people. If there's any teaching going on about God, it's going to be going on among the Jews. And the Gentiles are out. It would be ridiculous. What's he going to do, go teach the Gentiles? They're out anyway. There's no hope for them. What a ridiculous notion. Well, it's exactly what the gospel had in mind, is it not? 
What manner of saying is this that he said, Ye shall seek me, and shall not find me, and where I am, thither ye cannot come. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He's appealing to the thirsty. You see that? He didn't say, if any man at all. He said, if any man thirst. And he's not talking about physical thirst. He's talking about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, those people shall be filled. They're already in a blessed state. You see that? He's talking to regenerate children of God. Are you thirsty for the truth? Are you thirsty? Come unto me and drink. I've got what you're thirsty for. I've got that which can satiate your thirst. And he's talking about the doctrines that he preached and the truth that he is the Son of God who take away the sins of the world. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. This is talking about the fulfillment of Joel 2, 28-32, the prophecy wherein the Spirit was going to be poured out during the time of the Apostles. I suspect that there were many in this audience that were hearing this discourse who were the recipients of that Spirit on that day, like at Pentecost. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said of a truth, this is the prophet. Now, what's he referring to there? He's referring all the way back to this. I'm going to just give you the verse and I'll keep going. Deuteronomy 18, 15. This is the prophet. Back in Deuteronomy, it was said, you're going to be sent a prophet. There's going to be a prophet sent. Go back in Deuteronomy 18 and read what it says about that. It's very interesting. But these people had enough knowledge of Deuteronomy to know, well, I know there's this promise of a prophet. This might be the prophet, right? The prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Kind of confusing. Hath not the Scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David and is out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? They're confused on this. Jesus Christ was regarded by them as being someone from Nazareth. People regard me as someone come out of Little Rock. I've lived in Little Rock the majority of my life. But if there was a prophecy of me, if you'll let me to talk about that, and it said, uh, Brother Dan shall come out of Fort Smith, Arkansas. And all you knew about me was what you know. He said, no, nah, he must not be that Brother Dan, because he's from Little Rock. I was born in Fort Smith, Arkansas. I spent a couple of years there. I don't remember anything about it. So it was with Jesus. They knew him as someone who came from Nazareth, but he was born in Bethlehem. So there was a division among the people because of him, and some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto him, Why have you not brought him? He's clearly launching out against establishment religion here. He has no authority to speak here. We shouldn't be putting up with this. Why haven't you taken care of? And the officers answered, Never man spake like this man. What Jesus just said to them had <laughs> blown their minds. Wow. You should have heard what we just heard Jesus say. 
It's so completely and utterly contrary to the motions of establishment religion that we've been proselytized in for years and years and years that we're just reeling from it. Truly never man spake as Jesus spake, but never man sat as Jesus sat. Hebrews chapter 1, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom he also made the worlds. This is the same God who spoke the things to Job about the creation of the world. This is who Jesus Christ is. Is it any marvel really then that we would say he's going to speak unlike anybody else we've ever heard speak before? He's going to tear down all kinds of notions. Some of them are going to make us pretty uncomfortable, honestly. Who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. No man's ever sat there. No man has ever sat in that way next to God, having finished the work of eternal salvation. No man sat as this man sat. Chapter 10 and verse 11 it says, And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. These people were doing this over and over. It was a form of worship that prefigured the work of Christ. But they had to come back year after year after year because that was a worship liturgy not an offering that's actually taking away anyone's sins. It was a picture of what Christ would do. But when Christ actually did it, it was one and done. It's a finished work. He did it. He sat down. It's over. I've done the work. The work is finished. Those things can never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. That is something unique that Jesus Christ did. No one's ever done. No one could have finished that work. No one had a right to sit down afterwards because they hadn't done anything. He did this work and completed it. So how should we react to that? Look in verse 15. Whereof the Holy Ghost is also a witness unto us, for after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and into their minds, and I will write them. This is a Holy Ghost witness to us. Are you one of those people who can accept this witness today? If you're out there and you hear these things declared and you say, yes, that's my Savior. That's how He saved me. That's how His Word declares it. I'm telling you, you're one of His children. Because this is how the Holy Ghost determined to witness this to you. You've got the evidence in the Word of God. Someone's reading it to you and you receive it by faith and you say, yes, that is the truth. And their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. Why is that? Never man spake as this man, never man sat as this man. And he sat down on the right hand of God because he had finished the work of our salvation. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.